0: Last week on the show, we learned about the origins of the Star Wars script and how it came to be and how George Lucas's writing process is. And today we're doing the same thing, but for Empire Strikes Back, or as they called it at the time, Star Wars Chapter Two. Back in 1977, George Lucas managed to negotiate full sequel rights and merchandising rights with 20th Century Fox for Star Wars. How he did it? I don't know. He's a great businessman. But there was one condition In that original Star Wars contract, if George Lucas could not start shooting The Empire Strikes Back no later than the first quarter of 1979, all of his ownership over Star Wars would revert back to 20th Century Fox. This meant that he had almost 18 months at most to write the screenplay, hire the cast and crew, reform his company ILM, secure studio space, scout locations, and accomplish All other pre production chores that had taken four years with the original Star Wars. And if he missed his deadline, he would lose the most sensational property the movies had ever seen. So jump in the backseat of the Falcon and hold on, because this ain't like Dustin Crops. We're going back to 1978, a long time ago, in a year not so far away. You're listening to Han Talks First. I think that might be the longest intro we've had on this podcast so far. I could be wrong, but it was pretty lengthy. But it's interesting stuff. In my research, you know, learning that George Lucas was really close to almost losing the rights to Star Wars completely it is mind-blowing to me. And everything that I'm going to be talking about today on the show is fact. A lot of it is taken from a series of books I have on the making of Star Wars. Uh, Star Wars questions, um, history books, most notably the film historian Mark Clark is a huge source of a lot of what I'm going to be talking about today. So thank you, Mark Clark, for a lot of your historical writings on the process of Star Wars. So we thank you for that. And we're talking about a lot of great stuff today. Uh, a lot of stuff that I learned, and a lot of stuff that I got extra details on that I already knew about. And I really enjoyed last week's episode about learning about the original scripts for A New Hope. So that's why I'm doing it again today, because I really I really enjoyed it, and I learn more every day. So I don't know if I said it already, but we're on episode 86 of Haunt Talks First, which is pretty crazy. And uh, what a journey it's been. We're getting closer to season three, and I can't wait for that either. And uh, these episodes are flying by. I think it took one full year, or it took like a year and a half for me to do season one. So that was 50 episodes, and we're almost at 100 episodes. So I'm trying to think of something really special to do for 100 episodes. Uh, I'm I'm not sure yet, but if you guys have any ideas, you know, I want to make it something fun, like a fan event or uh, a a live stream or something. Uh, Just let me know your thoughts on that. But yeah, so I'm really excited about today's conversation. I hope you guys are too. Let's go ahead and dive right into it by starting to talk about George Lucas and uh, extending on his writing process. So it's no secret that George Lucas is a mediocre writer. Some would say a awful writer, a god-awful writer. But he is a good storyteller. And Lucas himself found the writing process excruciating and the most daunting process of filmmaking. And he realized that this sequel could not endure the kind of radical draft-to-draft reimagining that made the first movie so successful, because he lacked what was one of the most important forms of currency, time. Before he thought that a sequel movie would get made, he actually commissioned a science fiction author named Alan Dean Foster to create a possible low-budget sequel to Star Wars which was actually published as a novel under the title Splinter of the Mind's Eye in 1978. I actually did a video and a podcast episode on Alan Dean Foster because he's recently not receiving royalties from Disney. And he's been missing royalties for six years ever since Disney bought the company. They have stopped paying him what he is due from the earnings of his books, which is really sad. He's written a bunch of really great, very successful books, Splinter of the Mind's Eye being one of them. But anyway, that's a whole other story. If you want to listen to that, go check that out if you'd like to. But anyway, after this book was written, George Lucas realized that he wanted to make actually a more ambitious story. So he scrapped the idea of making that novel into the sequel movie. But he was considering adapting the novel at one point, which is also very interesting to think about. Because he lacked the time, he was thinking about making this book into that story. And in another podcast, in another time, we'll go over the events of that book and talk about what could have been The Empire Strikes Back. But we're, today we're talking about George's vision. So, George had a lot of ideas for The Empire Strikes Back, and a lot of the ideas. For this movie came from several different sequences and ideas that he had mapped out for A New Hope and the ideas that he scrapped from A New Hope. Some of those ideas were that of including a scene with a floating city, which we now know as Bespin. He also wanted to include an ice planet, which is now Hoth. He wanted to have a swamp planet, which is now Dagobah. He also wanted to resolve the romantic triangle between luke leia and han and one of the other big things was he wanted to have a cliffhanger of han solo being missing in action so it's interesting to think that that idea was originally conceived for a new hope when that movie wasn't really about han solo but rather luke skywalker so I'm glad they, he nixed it from that story so it could be presented in Empire, which paid off tremendously well. Now these concepts were eventually realized to what was then known as Star Wars Chapter 2. When he realized he didn't have time for dedicating all of his attention to writing for Empire Strikes Back, George Lucas visited writing conferences where he would pitch his notes to science fiction writers. And at one of these science fiction book conferences is where he met Leah Brackett. Leah Brackett is one of the few women at the time to break into the male dominated world of science fiction writing during the golden age of science fiction. And she of course is one of the main writers to empire strikes back and a huge contribution to a lot of the lore, and plot twists in this movie. She was hired to bring a more authentic, classic Hollywood approach to Star Wars. That was why she was chosen, because a lot of the things she had written before, mostly in her screenwriting days, were very reminiscent of old Hollywood, and that's what George Lucas wanted to bring to Star Wars, which is also similar instructions that he gave John Williams when writing the music. For Star Wars something to feel classic and authentic and real world in a silly space opera so after he hired her in three months she banged out the script for Empire Strikes Back and turned it into George Lucas three months she wrote that thing she was a huge fan of Star Wars and after seeing George Lucas's notes she was very interested in writing this next installment and that's why she wrote it so quickly because she loved the material One month after she turned in her first script, George Lucas approached her to do rewrites. But by that time, a month later, she had been hospitalized, and she could not work on the final version of the script. A few days later, she died of cancer. So, unfortunately, she did not get to contribute anything else to The Empire Strikes Back. I will go over some of the things she brought into this movie that made it so legendary, Because she's a very important part of this process this early on in the writing stage. One fun fact I wanted to point out, she is actually a member of the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. The weird thing is, she wasn't inducted until 2014. It's kind of sad, because she should have been inducted a long time ago. But being that she was one of the very few women to first start getting big in science fiction uh, novels probably what affected her not being in for such a long period of time, but I'm glad she's in there now. Well, anyway, George Lucas had to move on because he was on a time crunch and he had to deliver a final script very soon. So before he started off on his second draft, he wanted to fix some of the things that didn't meet his expectations in the first draft of the screenplay, some of which included that he didn't think Vader's dialogue matched his character. I quote, he says it was too corny. He also thought the tone of the of that Star Wars Chapter 2 was all wrong and didn't match the original, and he thought it was going a little too classical Hollywood, which is kind of funny because those are kind of the parameters which he set for Leia Brackett to write, and then he wanted to go back and change all that. Now, I'm not saying George Lucas, you know, hated this script. He actually really loved this script, and it influenced a lot of the things he added later on and developed from it. These are just a few of the main things that he wanted to focus on when going into his second draft. Now, some major changes that were in the second draft that didn't make it into the final piece, which I think are worth mentioning are these as they follow. So one of the most interesting ones was Han Han Solo was actually going to have a much bigger role in Empire Strikes Back, and he was actually going to have a backstory. George Lucas had written in his second draft a backstory for Han Solo. Details I don't know, but we do know that it was a very big piece of this movie. And Empire Strikes Back was originally going to focus heavily on his relationship with Leia and be more of a romantic film about Han Solo and Leia Organa. Another fun fact that was going to happen in the second draft of Empire was we were going to learn about Han Solo's old pirate mentor who taught him everything he knew and who left him a secret mission during this film. could have been related to Jabba. Again, the details on that I'm not familiar with. I could not find in any of my books, but um, it's interesting that this could have been, honestly, there could have not been a story. George Lucas just could have written dat- that down on, on paper. Very interesting stuff. Some of the other things that were big time changes before the final draft, which appeared in the second one, was that Yoda was originally named Minch Yoda. And he looked a lot different as well. If, if you're interested in seeing what the original concepts for Yoda looked like, you can actually go and check in the Empire Strikes Back comic version. The, uh, the comic came out at the same time as the movie did, so they had to go off earlier concept designs of Yoda, and at the time it was Minch, and he looks more purple-gray, he's a lot uglier, and he just, he looks like a troll, like a little troll, a little goblin troll, and I definitely prefer the one we have now, and obviously it went from Minch Yoda to just Yoda. Another major change was Lando was originally going to be a clone, uh, and one of the, bigger ones was vader was actually not going to be luke's father in the empire strikes back that vision hadn't been quite tuned right yet now Liam brackett is one of the people that influenced that idea and came up with that fantastic twist but vader was toying with it at this time still he wasn't completely signed on but he hadn't thrown it away completely One of the very interesting things why he chose not to have Vader be Luke's father at this point was because he actually wanted Anakin Skywalker to appear in The Empire Strikes Back. In the second draft, it says that Anakin actually appears in a spiritual form to encourage Luke Skywalker to continue his training on Dagobah so he can defeat Darth Vader. That's kind of weird, isn't it? that originally he wanted Anakin Skywalker to be separate from Vader, not only that, but also appear in the film as a Force ghost, helping Luke guide his way through. You know, what's funny is it only took George Lucas two months after Leia's first draft to turn in a second draft to the studio, which is actually pretty swift for considering George Lucas and his hating of the writing process. And his version streamlined Brackett's draft and paired the story back to something that was very close to its finished form, while also integrating critical new elements. You know, at this point, Han Solo's backstory was thrown away, and this is when he introduced Boba Fett as a as a character, and he introduced him so that he was able to have a cliffhanger ending for Han Solo at the end of the film. You know, one of the reasons why it was switched that Vader was going to be Luke's dad was because George Lucas thought it was too unnecessary for Luke Skywalker to have three mentors in one film. Obi-Wan Kenobi, Yoda, his father. So that's why he decided to go with Leia's original version of having Vader be Luke's dad. And making Vader his father not only tightens the script, but it brought new and truly mythic dimensions to the overarching narrative, which was pure genius if you ask me. Switching from a storybook like tale of good versus evil to a complicated chronicle of temptation and redemption, it's, it's genius. It, it's that mythological story, storytelling that we latch onto as, as people through, throughout time and history. And the major twist of this, you know, Vader being Luke Skywalker's dad of all people, was incredibly important to George Lucas to remain secretive. So much so that he actually left it out of the script that he gave to his actors and to Fox studio executives. They didn't even know. He even went as far as to not even inform Irvin Kirshner, who was the director, about this scene for as long as possible. So even Irvin Kirshner didn't find out until it was necessary for him to learn that fact about the film. Genius. Absolutely Genius. The way he kept it secret so it could stay hidden and he put out like false news, false spoilers uh, to the news that Obi-Wan killed Anakin's dad or Luke's dad. Genius stuff. Kind of a, a side note here, you know, ever since the beginning early days of this, George Lucas has always, you know, told the story that he thought of Star Wars as this huge 12 episode you know, saga, space opera thing, and he wanted to do three different trilogies with three movies, or he wanted to do 12 movies, and blah, blah, blah. But it wasn't until this point, after his second draft was turned in, that he stopped referring to the Star Wars series as a group of 12 films, but actually as a trilogy. So it was in 1978 that it was confirmed that this was going to be a three-movie saga. Now, the reason why he chose 12 chapters at the beginning was because that was the number of... Hollywood serials at the time which he based Star Wars off of but it was nice to see that he had a plan at this point of where this story was going to end and that would be this movie's predecessor you know but at this point the script still wasn't done yes the story was there or at least parts of the story the outline was strong but the dialogue was absolute crap. Q. Lawrence Kasdan. Lawrence Kasdan, of course, now known as the person who has written the most Star Wars after George Lucas, came in and helped polish the script to be absolutely perfect. And of course, he's worked with George Lucas much more since thereafter. He Worked on Raiders of the Lost Ark and Return of the Jedi, Force Awakens, Solo, uh, a lot of stuff. He's also a director as well, so he understands actors and blocking and important things like that. I actually watched a movie he directed, and it it really wasn't bad. It was really gripping, actually. I think it was called Dreamcatcher, and it features Morgan Freeman, and it's based off a Stephen King book. I think it's on Netflix, or maybe I rented it from a movie store. I can't remember. It was so long ago. But he's a great director, and that movie is actually within ten within the one to two decade mark. So it's not that old. Uh, it's a very good good film. I I recommend checking that out, and you can see a little bit of his work outside of this. But yeah, so he decided to bring in Lawrence Kasdan, who had written some other stuff there, who was Lucas was a fan of, and that's why he picked him. And Lawrence Kasdan wrote all the drafts after the second one, and I think there was three more after this, and he wrote them all and, you know, really finished and tightened up this script. Lawrence Kasdan is actually the one who came up with the idea that Luke loses his hand in the climactic battle with Vader towards the end. You know, he thought of it as a very symbolic approach to um, being, you know, disarmed, not only literally, but metaphorically as well. Uh, Originally, his arm was going to be sliced off at the elbow. I don't know why it was changed to the forearm. Um, Maybe I can look that up and find it somewhere, but in the books I read, I I couldn't find that, so I apologize. Another thing that Kasdan is most infamous for is he wrote the iconic lines of Yoda. Now, yes, George Lucas came up with the idea of backwards talk, you know, where Yoda says things a little differently than are people like read a book I did where you put like the pronoun after the whatever I don't I don't speak that lingo but uh, Irvin Kirshner is the actual one who wrote the dialogue such as uh, do or do not there is no try and other fantastic lines from Yoda that have you know stuck with men and women for years and related to so many different things so uh, great work from him on that. He All the dialogue in this film is really a credit to Lawrence Kasdan. And a lot of the, uh, the story transitions and big plot elements are a credit to Leah Brackett. And of course, the overall story is a credit to George Lucas. So it's amazing how three different people coming together and working on something really molded this story to what it was going to be today. Another thing that Lawrence Kasdan brought to the table was... He wanted to come up with this race of alien grunt workers that we now know as Ugnaughts, and he wanted them to work on the Cloud City planet of Bespin. It's funny, we now know them as Ugnaughts, but Lawrence Kasdan wanted to call them Hogmen, and George Lucas just thought that wasn't alien enough, so they changed it to Ugnaughts, but (laughs) I just think it's funny. So after completing many drafts of these scripts, George Lucas was at this point looking to find a director so that he could focus the majority of his time on his company. You know, George Lucas did want to direct direct this second one, but it was just a matter of time. He just literally couldn't do it. He had so many things going on at one time that he just couldn't direct the film. So, I mean, I think we're all a little thankful that he couldn't do it because Irvin Kershner killed it. And we're going to talk about how... How they got there and everything else like that, but one of the reasons why George Lucas couldn't direct this film because, uh, well, for one, his company was moving locations from Van Nuys to San Rafael, so that was a that's a big thing when you're handling a company with employees and a bunch of tech and uh, a lot of insurance issues. But another big thing was that they were building the technology for this next film and advancing the technologies they had used before and patenting those ideas. But I think the biggest thing that distracted Lucas from directing this film was that he was in the middle of a lawsuit with a company called Dixtera, which I think is a production company, and the producers of that company, because they were the producers of Battlestar Galactica, and George Lucas and company was uh, considering Battlestar Galactica a ripoff of Star Wars at the time, and they were currently in a lawsuit, so that took up a lot of time as well. Kind of a fun fact there as well. Um, there was a lot of headache stuff happening at ILM at the time. Uh, that itself could be its own podcast, but Lucas spent a majority of his time focusing on that so that another director could come in and help with the project. Because George really, he just focuses on editing. He's he's an editing guy. He's said before he's always wanted to be an editor and a documentarian, and he finds when the movie is really made and uh, molded out and crafted is in the editing room. So I think that's where his focus was going to end up being regardless. So we now know the director, Irvin Kirshner, who did an amazing job, was picked by George Lucas because he was a former film instructor of his. But it's funny because he actually wasn't the first picked. You know, he was considered from a wide range of other filmmakers before being approached to make The Empire Strikes Back. Alan Parker is an example, who's directed a film called Mississippi Burning with, um, oh, what is that guy's name? Gene Hackman, I think? I, I think that's right. Uh, he also approached John Badman, who uh, I would say most notably directed Dracula. And not just those two, but he George Lucas had a list of 100 names of directors he was going to ask. Irvin Kirshner was in there somewhere, but I know he wasn't up at the top because he did ask these other two before. So George Lucas had a big list to go through. And a lot of the directors on this list declined because they thought uh, making a sequel was a terrible idea. You know, at the time, sequels were awful. All sequels did terrible. It was a mistake. And it was like a common rule of thumb not to do them in Hollywood at the time. And there were also directors... um, Alan Parker and John Badman, for example, have quoted saying that the reason why they didn't want to make The Empire Strikes Back was because if it was bad, then the director was going to get all the blame for it. And if the movie was good, George Lucas was going to get all the credit for the film, which we now know is is fact. Yeah, that is true. Um, you know, a lot of people didn't know Irvin Kirshner's name for a while. And newcomers to Star Wars... Always just think George Lucas when they hear Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, or other films. Which is understandable. He, he of course, is the creator. But these directors had a point in what they were saying. So anyway, Irving Kirshner made, made the mark. But there was another issue with another person that George Lucas was having a hard time with. And that was actually Gary Kurtz. You don't know who Gary Kurtz is? Well, he's the producer of all the original Star Wars films, and a very essential part in the making of Star Wars. You know, Gary Kurtz is often people say, if it wasn't for him, we wouldn't even have Star Wars. He's a great producer. He got everything George Lucas needed, uh, a great partner. But they didn't get along all the time. You know, he, George Lucas had said that Gary Kurtz often is part of the reason why people didn't like George Lucas. He would say that he would have disagreements with the crew members, and he didn't like the way Gary kind of ignored the the, the crew, like the photography crew in London during A New Hope, which, of course, I don't know if it's true. That's just from what George says. He, he says he kind of was trying to turn people against him and didn't handle his producial jobs. Very well, again, this is coming from George, this is not from me, I don't have proof to back this up, but he was having a hard time with Gary Kurtz and considered replacing him with someone else at the time. They did eventually work things out. That was just kind of a side note that I wanted to mention, that it would have been really weird if we had another film, or no Star Wars films, without Gary Kurtz, because he was a very essential part in helping make these movies. So, George Lucas has said to this day that one of the biggest challenges for The Empire Strikes Back was... Do you want to guess which the biggest challenge was, real quick? Go ahead and take a take a second and take a guess what the biggest challenge was. Okay, did you have time? Well, here's the answer. The biggest challenge to The Empire Strikes Back was getting Yoda right. Now, the puppet was made by Wendy Mittner and Stuart Freeborn. Now, looking at it now, it's kind of weird to think... Yoda was the hardest part of that movie, but he's, like, the the best part of that movie. He's so likable, and everyone loves Yoda. Everyone loves him because of all the work that was put into him. Wendy Mettner is the main architect of Yoda. Stuart Freeborn was his, her assistant. Now, when they were first commissioned with the task to make Yoda... Their design instructions were that they were to make a pint-sized, green, 800-year-old Jedi Masters with features that emulated both Albert Einstein and Takashi Shimura. If you don't know Takashi Shimura is, it's a character from Seven Samurai. And it actually didn't look anything like Takashi Shimura. <laughs> it actually resembled uh, more of the assistant to the uh, puppet maker which was Stuart <laughs> so uh, it's, it's kind of weird there but yeah Wendy actually modeled it after her assistant Stuart Freeborn a little bit more than uh, Takashi but there, there are elements of Albert Einstein in there the, a lot of people have said in the past that uh, it was inspired by Albert Einstein and like a bulldog or something like that while I do believe that is true um, I did not find any quotes from George Lucas saying that himself but uh, this is what I did find Now, another one of the hardest parts, uh, I would say, probably the hardest part, was finding the person to play Yoda, because it wasn't just about making the creature; it was about bringing that creature to life. And George Lucas had the idea of using uh, little people or or dwarfs uh, as as Yoda. And then he, when he decided he couldn't find an actor who was strong enough in their talents to. To play that character. Then he started looking at children and again had the same problem. Couldn't find a child actor with the, the potential to bring to life that character, especially being <clears throat> a 900-year-old master Jedi. So he eventually went to Muppet Studio and he found Frank Oz, who of course uh, is, is one of the best parts of Star Wars. I mean, Yoda is... Everything he is because of Frank Oz, and Frank Oz was picked because he's he's a, a senior uh, puppeteer at at um, the Muppets studio at the time. He voiced Miss Piggy and Fozzie Bear uh, and Animal, and I'm sure there was a lot more. I want to say he did Kermit at some point, but I don't I don't think that's true. But yeah, uh, he did a lot of characters on The Muppets and also a writer, director, voiced on The Dark Crystal, created The Dark Crystal, directed that. I love Dark Crystal. It's like uh, my second thing to Star Wars is Dark Crystal. Absolutely amazing. But hiring Frank Oz was probably the wisest decision George Lucas could have made at the time. And Frank did a unique job. You know, it wasn't only a good job. It was a unique job playing Yoda. And he made it believable and at the same time, bringing surprisingly emotional richness to this character that we, that has stuck with us all, uh, since small children to grown ass adults. Now, the production of *The Empire Strikes Back* was starting to come to life after the final drafts of the script were being turned in by Lawrence Kasdan. But the problem was this: the script was very ambitious, as George Lucas had originally intended from the first draft he made. It was so ambitious and so large that no studio at the time could actually house its scale for production. No one had the amount of studio space to make all these sets, to accommodate all the crew, and to build these huge worlds and these environments that George Lucas was uh, trying to make. So George Lucas actually had to, you know, make like hire his own construction company to create a new oversized soundstage to be built with customized specifications. They had a lot new technology that they were introducing into the filmmaking world. And a lot of the sound stages at the time couldn't be adept to that. So they had to make everything from scratch. So, they did use a, a bunch of uh, studios in um, some in LA and then also some in um, Europe. But most of the shooting was done in London on the IMP, I think is what they're called, IMP studios, and also the ones that George Lucas himself were commissioning to build. Now, all of this made, you know, with the new advancements in technology and building the studio sound stages, this all contributed to the fact that this movie was going so far over budget and super exceeding the first film's budget. You know, there's no exact number out there, but it went at least $10 million over budget. In five months alone, the film was uh, at one point at $15 million, and only a couple months later, it skyrocketed up to $21.5 million. Uh, mainly because of this new sound studio and all the tech they were building for this stuff, it's it's crazy, it's insane, you know. But it was all worth it. Empire Strikes Back proved to be a success. No, obviously not as big as the first one. You know, you can't expect that. I mean, Star Wars like <laughs> is one of the highest grossing movies of all time, and it, for that time period anyway, insane and probably with inflation, still to this day, probably one of the highest grossing movies of all time could you imagine if they did a re-release of the original trilogy like unedited in theaters it would pass end game i'm telling you right now it'd pass end game but you know i mean that's it for the the script anyway i'm getting a little bit more into the the production stuff now which i will save for another podcast and another time but that's really all i had on the creation of you know, the pre-production aspect of this of this script. There's still a lot more, but I wanted to talk about mainly the drafts and how it started off as one thing and turned into something completely different because I find that stuff fascinating to see what we could have gotten and to see how story evolves over time, not just in the way that it was written, but also in the way that we tell it. So the script and the casting and all the pre-production was just the tip of the iceberg for obstacles yet to come for The Empire Strikes Back because on March 5th, 1979 in Norway when production began that's when the real problems started and we will get into the production madness of the Empire Strikes Back on another episode for another time so I hope you guys enjoyed this episode today episode 86 of Han Talks First talking all about the origins of the Empire Strikes Back script I had fun I learned a lot I hope you did too Uh, if you like this episode hit me up let me know what you thought Give me your your thoughts on everything and tell me some facts that maybe I missed on that you would like to share. Check out the YouTube page. we got live streams every Monday and Friday, so come by and check that out. This Friday, we are doing a live stream. Me and my girlfriend are hosting the WandaVision After Show, so please stop by and check that out as well. I'd like to thank you all so much for listening today. Please share this podcast with your friends or your mother, you know, whoever you want. I just want to get the word out it's doing really well so far and i can't thank you all enough for your support and you know helping me out on this journey of star wars therapy you know it that's that's what this is about it's just a bunch of nerds getting together and talking about what we love so it's always great to be here with you guys so well that's it for me today so thank you so much for listening again and I will catch you guys very soon. Now, somehow, someway, somewhere this week. May the Force... Wait for it. Be with you.